Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 27, Sundown. Danielle Devenu rushed from Gabriel Princip's chamber. She brushed her hair in the lift. When the door slid back, she faked confidence, walking to meet the Phoenix Council. She stood in the center of the illuminated grid. I apologize for my tardiness. Danielle glanced from one violet, faceless image to the next. Our number is incomplete. I have nothing new to report on the mission, Danielle said. General Castro's team is due to evacuate the Greenstream any moment. When they do, we insist you debrief General Castro personally. Commit nothing to electronic device. Daniel raised an eyebrow. I'm sorry? It is our collective understanding there are forces intent on obtaining intelligence on their mission on Castro, McGillicuddy, and Bath. The dissidents? Yes. One member of the council interrupted, as if finishing the other council member's sentence, or perhaps a member of your team. An ominous hush fell over the room. Then, the shape of a council member, who had previously been absent, formed in the misty mass of expressionless, genderless holograms. My apologies. I was monitoring the threat matrix. Threats? Daniel walked closer to the hovering apparitions. Indeed. The dissidents, led by Maricela Santiago, have escalated their rhetoric. An attack is imminent. I don't understand. If you know Santiago is behind the dissidents, why doesn't Phoenix law enforcement do something? The situation between Santiago and the various factions of the dissidents is complicated. We are monitoring the situation, Administrator Devenu. It is your responsibility to protect and debrief your team. Devenu winced noticeably then stepped back. Of course, I understand. For a moment, the wispy, lavender images of the holographic council blinked. A surge of static warped their faces. A low hum seemed to emanate from one corner of the room. Power surge, Danielle muttered, then raised her voice. The team must be about to come through. You understand the directions of this council, Project Administrator Devenu? Danielle nodded. She waited to be dismissed, but the council said nothing more. Instead, the hologram faces and torsos lost their shape, slowly disintegrating into the walls of the illuminated chamber. Danielle turned on her heel, eager to descend to the laboratory. The explorer's most recent journey to the planet above had been their longest yet. She hoped they were able to get back on track, to engage the survivors of the planet, and to obtain information she could share with the council. Castro, Bath, and Cuddy descended the long, turning stairs into Manhattan's City Hall subway station. The general led the way, with Bath close behind. 
Cuddy picked up the rear. Their simulacrum's keen senses acclimated to the darkness. Ugh. Bath's voice echoed in disgust. He pointed beyond the terminal and turnstiles. I'm glad we can't smell anything. Cracked tile floors littered with dead and decaying bodies stretched out before them. Castro grimaced as he walked through a row of corpses. They look like they've been torn apart, eaten by something. Animals? Bath said. He looked over his shoulder at Cuddy. The Major Sonoff swam in the air, robotic eyes darting around like floodlights. Hoffa said something about Morlocks underground, Castro said. He stopped in front of a map. Sounds like alligators in the sewers. Behind them, Cuddy dropped down a level. He peered into the pit where magnetic rails led north and south. The Major glanced up. He saw a human form cut across the last rays of the evening sun filtering into the terminal. The figure pursued Bath and the General. Hunched over, Cuddy walked slowly, his back to a wall. His footfalls were quiet. His simulacrum's auditory sensors targeted the movements of the person creeping behind his friends. Grand Central is about three miles from here, Castro said, nodding at the map. He turned saw Bat's eyes scanning grid lines, faded colors, memorizing cartography, synthesizing graphics into data. The United Nations headquarters is about another 800 meters, Bath interjected, maybe five minutes traveling these tunnels. And maybe more above ground, Castro said, turning, leading the way to the end of the station where the walkway narrowed into the subway channel. There's plenty of places between here and there where we can store these bodies, stations, storage lockers, maintenance ports. Bath gazed back at the trail of corpses. You think they'll be safe? Castro glanced around but didn't reply. He turned his attention to where the walkway curved across broken metal tracks. There, he pointed at a long alcove with a rounded roof and rusted metal gate. The general stooped to drop into the rail line below. Bath crouched to follow, then sensed something. Instinctively, the professor ducked, shifting away from something, someone crashing into the general. Benjamin went careening into the long, deep pit. Cuddy sprang into action. Bath, get out of the way. John leaned as far into the brick and curved metal as he could. Cuddy rushed up from below him. The major soared into the subway channel, falling fast atop Castro's assailant. Cuddy grappled, instantly realizing he traded blows with Octavia, the woman who patrolled the Oddfellows' base of operations at City Hall. Get off! Cuddy's fist caught the muscular woman in the ribs. His punch was at least two times swifter and harder than it would be in his human form. The woman rolled from the Major's grasp, her legs stabbing in and around his, thrusting, trying to gain a foothold. Castro lurched away from Cuddy and Octavia, reaching for his Beretta, trying to get to his feet. Bath leapt into the channel cautiously. His oculus peered, marking each person, each weapon. He scanned up and down the subway tunnel. Octavia hooked a knee into Major McGillicuddy's inner flank, a blow that would have stunned an ordinary human. Cuddy felt nothing, but was impressed with her combat skill. Before he could get a hold of Octavia, the bald woman locked one of his legs in hers, bent it, hyperextending the mechanical sinew and plastic muscle. She dug a hard knee into the Major's chest, and then threw a punch the Major caught in his massive fist. "'What are you?' 
she struggled, biting hard on her lower lip. Enough, Castro shouted. Bath and the general encircled the other two. Castro brandished his automatic handgun. Bath held his satchel out, as if to swing the can-filled bag at Octavia's face. The hell you think you're doing with that, she scoffed. We left you alone, Cuddy lay beneath his formidable opponent. He knew there was something wrong with his leg, but he couldn't feel it. If we wanted to, we could've... That's exactly why I followed you, Octavia said, speaking over the Major. She relinquished her hold on Cuddy's simulacrum. We don't get visitors. At least not anybody from the South, or anyone who's been in the Great Southern War. Everybody else we run into either fights with us, or tries to steal from us. Nobody, no one, just leaves. Better to follow you now, rather than meet up with you later. Castro stared at the woman, let her words sink in. I told you, he spoke urgently, wondering how long he could sustain the half-truths and lies to cover up what he, Cuddy, and Bath really were. We're explorers. We're on a mission. We didn't take anything from you, or the odd fellows. Octavia rolled off the Major. Castro helped Cuddy to his feet. We don't want any part of Hoffa's war. You say that, but I've seen these uniforms before. Seen those boots. Octavia stood up, arms leaning on her knees, palms down. What are you talking about? Cuddy said. But when he stood, a loud sound, like wires scraping metal, reverberated throughout the tunnel. It was evident the sound came from somewhere beneath his pseudo-skin. You're not exactly human, are you? Octavia said, nodding at Cuddy, but speaking to Castro. Maybe you're mutants. Maybe you're something else. I assure you, we're not mutants. Benjamin waved the gun between them, motioning for Octavia to stand. Not Morlocks or Rockheads. Octavia pointed at Cuddy. Hoffa's exhausted. He didn't notice your hands are larger. And there's something wrong with his leg. Bath glanced down at his hands, wondering why he hadn't noticed their size before. He turned his attention to the Major's ankle, the shredded coveralls, and damaged pseudoskin. Viscous green fluid coated and dried at the sight of Cuddy's injury. The miniaturized machines repaired Bath's fellow explorer. Castro tried to change the subject. You said you've seen these uniforms before. He raised his gun again, staring down the barrel. He saw Octavia's sweat-soaked face. In other circumstances, she might have been attractive to him, if not for the odd fellow's tattoo at her temple, the taut muscles, and determined glare. You gonna kill me or what? Octavia asked, challenging the general. They locked eyes. Benjamin squinted, seeking, testing the woman, realizing, of course, that if he were here in the flesh, his aged, crippled body would be no match for the survivor. Talk. Castro pried back the hammer on the Beretta. Maybe he was testing his own resolve, not Octavia's. Get on with it, she sneered, gritting her teeth. Bath and Cuddy stood nearby, frozen. Each wondered what Castro was doing. Bath finally spoke up. General, we don't have time for this. Shut up, doctor. Benjamin knew the academic was right. Any minute now, Chang and Ganaya would bring them back. Their consciousnesses would be stripped from these robotic bodies. They would collapse in the tunnel, just as good as dead. Castro eased the hammer back into place with his oversized thumb. He placed the weapon in his pocket. No, he said. 
He thought of his last encounter with Adnan Gohan, watching the Iranian delegate take pleasure in the impending destruction, content for the world to go under. Kesho had meant to kill his rival, but in the moment, doing so felt too much like sparing the other man. I've killed enough, he told Octavia. Don't think I haven't, she replied. I'm not going to murder someone in cold blood. Here. He picked up Octavia's rifle where it fell nearby, held it in the air between them. She took the gun. What now? she asked, peering at the general. She, Cuddy, and Bath watched Castro walk a few feet, then climb onto the slender walkway above the rails. Maybe we'll just have to trust each other, the general said, his back turned. Come on. Cuddy followed the general's lead up above the tracks. They walked towards the gated alcove. Octavia turned to Bath. He said you were explorers. John nodded. Something like that. What did you mean when you said you've seen these uniforms and boots before? You saw someone else wearing something similar? Octavia slung her rifle over her shoulder. She walked a few inches ahead of Bath, towards the others. Not similar. Bath held up his hands, showing the woman he was unarmed. Octavia gestured to where Castro and Cuddy pulled at chains and a metal lock outside the gate. Your leader. He mentioned the Freemasons, Shriners, other organizations. That's where I saw photos. Arthur Roth and his brothers left behind a bound archive of information for those who remained. Huge books made out of paper, vinyl, nothing electronic. I saw pictures of people in these clothes. Same design, same boots. Octavia climbed from the tracks up to the walkway. She helped pull Bath up. Who were they? John asked. The woman shrugged. Beats me. There was a caption. I'm trying to remember what it said. State construction. Technology. Octavia hesitated, searching for the words. Engineering. Intelligence. Something like that. Up ahead, General Castro paused, ceased working at the lock. Wait, what did you say? State engineering and intelligence? He turned to face Octavia. Yeah, I think so. The Masons left so much of their stuff in the Grand Lodge. It's been raided over the years by squatters, rockheads. Who knows what's left? Benjamin looked at John, a serious, stony expression etched into his pseudo-skin. He turned back to Cuddy. Did you get that lock? The Major struggled a little, then smashed the foot-long metal padlock. He pried back the bolt, dropped it to the ground. "'What are you doing?' Octavia asked. "'What's in there?' An inhuman groan emitted from Castro's chest and mouth. He touched Octavia's shoulder. "'I'm sorry about before.' Behind him, Cuddy and Bath walked through the gate into the storage hollow. Hoffa said the Oddfellows helped people. "'That's why you've collected all those goods up there, right?' Well, I'm taking a big chance. I need you to help me, to help us. Help you? Octavia retreated a little. A minute ago you had your auto in my face. I'm an old soldier, Octavia. You attacked us. Maybe we both had our reasons, but... My mission is bigger than mere survival of the fittest gang or clan or... Octavia, I need you to help me save the human race. The hospital was filthy. Dirt, dust, and chemicals coagulated into a thin film on metal and wood surfaces. 
fluids, both chemical and human, dried near patient beds, under whirring, clanging machines. Ganiah hovered over Melinda Wyndham's bed. She couldn't help but find herself distracted by the score of patients, muffled voices whispering beyond the blue-green plastic curtains. A damned council's behind what happened, a man spoke. They changed the name of the council. Issue ordinances, a woman growled. Expect us to roll over. Well, we're gonna roll over, Ganaya heard another say. It's what we always do. It's the way the computer wants it. Do what the computer say. Shoot. Forget the council. Ganaya removed the tube from Mindy's throat. The woman gagged, then dry coughed painfully. Mike Helms had been at his lover's bedside since Wyndham was brought to the hospital, since she fell into a coma, since she lost their baby. Mindy! Helms leapt from the dented chair in the corner. Sweetheart, do you need anything? Water! Mike gazed up at Dr. Ganaya's dark eyes. He saw little sympathy, only exhaustion. Or was it resentment? Give her space, Mike. Meryl turned to a brown and gray robot nearby. It's your job to clean this place, to ensure that when it's not completely staffed, that we maintain a standard of cleanliness. The robot's lit eyes dimmed. Gold lights blinked across a panel on the boxy machine's chest. A clicking sound indicated it processed the physician's statement. Well, Ganiah said firmly. The linens are clean, the old machine replied, as if this was sufficient. Mike saw the doctor smile curtly, then order the robot assistant. Return to your starting point, check your programming, fix yourself, reestablish your routine. There was caustic anger in her voice Mike had never seen from the usually calm woman. Go. The robot hesitated. Wheels dropped from its base and it sputtered away, passing between the plastic curtains as if oblivious to the partition. Nothing works right anymore, Mike told Meryl, as if this was some consolation. His hand brushed matted blonde curls from Mindy's forehead. Will she be all right, Doc? Ganaya glanced at an LED pad, read information about Wyndham's condition, lab readouts, the observations of unfeeling machines. The bruises and lacerations will heal, Ganaya said. I'll need to see her again soon about the concussion. And then, of course, there is... Well, it may be better that I stay out of it. Ganaya said this and instantly felt like a fraud, a coward. She felt she should defend Mike and Mindy's right to procreate, regardless of their social status in the project. But she could not bring herself to think this through. She knew it was her conditioning, rules and regulations. Thirty years of practicing medicine aligned with the ordinances and guidelines set down by the central processor. In the bed below Ganaya, Melinda Wyndham's glassy, tear-soaked eyes wandered. What other? She turned, focusing on Mike looked at the doctor, then back down at Mindy. Mike, what other? The baby, Mindy. We lost it. Expecting her patient's display of emotion, that awkward interaction she never quite got used to, Meryl turned away. She was surprised when she heard no sobs, no crying. As she passed through the plastic curtain, she heard Mindy beckon Mike to come close. Mira watched as Mindy kissed him, and he kissed her back. I should have known, Mindy said. To them, we are inhuman. No. We are the dead. We are the dead.
The way the injured woman said this disturbed Ganaya, who walked slowly towards her office, her footing uneven. Faces turned. She sensed blame. But... But that was ridiculous, wasn't it? Surely she couldn't be held responsible for the harm others caused. Or was it something else? Did the poor and abused seek an unlikely ally? Don't talk that way. Ganaya heard someone in the waiting area murmur. The dissidents can't help us any more than the council or law enforcement. She leaned into her workstation. The rectangular nook was more of a closet than an office. An old laptop sat on a desk bolted to the wall. Paper files lined the perimeter of the room. A lamp hovered. Ganaya had pleasantly distracted herself with the work with Chang in the laboratory. While she sympathized, albeit at a distance, with the injuries lower-class citizens like Mike and Mindy suffered, a voice deep within her kept reminding her to remain objective. Medicine, care, and supplies all had to be provided sparingly by order of the central processor. She didn't know all the details of the ongoing conflict between the underprivileged and law enforcement. In the past, she always found herself resenting both the undereducated and the authoritarian. Ganaya attempted writing notes. First, a requisition for repairs of her nursing droids. Then, an index of all patients she personally saw since the scuffle in the squalor. If she was going to formulate an expanded care plan or file a complaint, she should at least know all of their names. Wearied, the Surgeon General clinged to the pendant around her neck, the jewel her mother gave her upon her graduation from the project's prestigious medical school. Always remember, her mother, a widow and single mother, encouraged her, the weak will always need and the strong will always desire. As a physician, you will be in position to help and demand respect from both. Aljamal Ganaya Gohan was the young wife of the Iranian ambassador to the United Nations. When Ganaya's father died in their New York penthouse, Aljamal was spirited away to the Phoenix Project. In the early days of the project's founding, Ganaya's mother spearheaded the project's class system. She rejected 21st century notions of equality and affluence. Aljamal carved out a system based on practicality, necessity. Those whose professions and talents were most in demand, who would provide for coming generations, should not be the de facto leaders of the project. No, they would enjoy the most benefit. Aljamal lived long enough to see her only daughter become Surgeon General. After that, they drifted apart. Ganaya's mother had a number of intimate relationships, often with men Meryl did not approve of, men who were not Muslim, Zoroastrian, or at least of Arabic descent. As an unmarried woman, Aljamal shifted from partner to partner, often taking up with men who could provide her something, security, status, sympathy. Ganaya was unsure what it was that drew her mother to these men she herself couldn't stand. Maybe it was unspecific. Was Aljamal a romantic, seeking companionship, absent love? Or maybe she was as lonesome as Ganaya, and not unlike Mindy Wyndham, cold, inhuman, lost. Sitting in the dim bay, Cuddy and Bath listened as their leader explained their situation to Octavia. He was convincing, despite his waning voice. He spared the details about the Phoenix Project, but assured the woman theirs was a mission of discovery and of mercy. 
The general told about their experience on Liberty Island, their encounter with the Rockheads. His voice assumed a more machine-like tone. Since we've been on the surface, we've been attacked, separated, and fought for our survival. Just like you, we tried to help others. Yeah, Cuddy interjected. His own voice sounded strangely weak. Met some survivors in the tunnel under the river. We were going up to Grand Central to trade for medical supplies. For all we know, Bath added, they may be dead. Cuddy scoffed, but before he could say more, Castro summoned what strength he could. I was captured on Governor's Island. I escaped and crossed over into Brooklyn. You're from here. You know the fight wasn't easy. Yeah, Octavia spoke into the darkness. Oddfellows haven't crossed the bridge in years. It belongs to Jones. Not anymore, Castro said. Octavia gasped. Are you serious? I am. Cuddy spoke up. We took on the rockheads at the mouth of the tunnel. After a long pause, Octavia leaned forward. She was impressed. Damn. Okay. General. What is it you want? How can I help? Pretty soon the technology that allows our minds to transmit into these robotic bodies is going to pull us back, back underground. That's right, Cuddy said. And then, Kasher answered, we're susceptible to the whims of every mutant, rockhead, and morlock that comes this way. No doubt Silvio Jones's crew is working to take back what was theirs. And hunt down those who opened the bridge, Cuddy added. Yes, the general continued. If anything happens to these bodies, our mission is over. We're no good to anyone, and the people underground remain there until someone finds them. We need your help, Bath urged. His infrared vision blinked. The oculus beneath his pseudoskin slowly closed. General... Cuddy... The professor's voice decrescendoed. It's time, Cuddy murmured. He lost feeling in his mechanical limbs. In the darkness, Octavia felt General Castro's hand reach out. The lukewarm pseudoskin slowly cooled against her forearm. He squeezed gently. Please, he said. Please. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with contributions from Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Please visit our website, aftermathpodcast.net, for updates, original artwork and music, character dossiers, and more. 
You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Facebook at facebook.com slash group, and on YouTube at Fire Pit Creative Group. Aftermath and its story, characters, music, and artwork are copyrighted by Fire Pit Creative Group.